0: Open up to Romans chapter four. We're going to review the passage we studied last week. So, starting in verse twelve, um, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith, that it might be by grace, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him who... Whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Thank you for today, Lord, and just that we all get to come together, God, and worship you, Lord. You're so worth worshiping, God, what you did for us, Lord. It's amazing, God. I pray for all of us in this room, Lord, for our belief that we would not stagger, God, that we would have faith, God, on your son, Lord. It's good to wake up every morning. God, I know that you finished the work for us, God, because I know, Lord, in my own strength and the strength of all of us, In this room, Lord, that we couldn't do it without you, God. You did it all for us, God, and that was your plan from the beginning, Lord. And it's the most amazing love story, God, Mm -hmm. that we could ever come to know, God. And Lord, all you ask from us is that we receive it, God, and that we give our lives to it, God. You give us this amazing gift, Lord. And I just pray, God, that we would hold that precious God to our hearts, that we would take that gift that you give us, God. And we would give our hearts right back to you, Lord, because that's what you beg for, God. You beg for our hearts, God. Not our knowledge, not our minds, God, but our hearts, that we would give up our lives to you, Lord. So, God, I pray that that we would hear your word today, God, um, that you would bring something to each of us, Lord, um, that you would open our ears, that we could hear you, God, that you would open up our hearts to be soft, to things that make us uncomfortable, Lord, um, to things that challenge us and challenge what we knew from the world, God um i pray that anyone new today lord um just comes to know your love god and comes to know your amazing gospel message god um because it's something that should never get old god every day lord we get to wake up to you god um and just give you that love in return god and accept your love god um so i pray for brandon um as he speaks boldly god that you speak through him lord um and that we each just walk out of this room today, God, with our hearts renewed and refreshed in you. Um, and that we find rest in you, Lord. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.
1: <laughs> All right. Okay. Wow. We've been in Romans. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't feel like it man, it's been good for me uh, studying it out. Again, Romans is this book that basically uh, is uh, Paul's gospel, right? Uh, If Paul was to write a gospel letter, this would be it. He's laying out for us, uh, he's laying out for the church in Rome, uh, what it means to be saved. And we've talked about a lot of stuff so far, okay? So let's review just briefly. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul is proving to us that the whole world is guilty before God. Okay, R- Remember this conversation that we had? It goes something like this. Uh, you were born into sin. And it doesn't matter whether or not you're religious. It doesn't matter if you were brought up in a particular church. It doesn't matter uh, what, um, I don't know, moralistic code that you've lived by. Okay, uh, At the end of the day, absent Jesus Christ and his justification... You are uh, lost in your sin, and that's every person. That's that is the burden and the curse that was given to us through Adam, right? Yeah, good. Yeah. With me? Yeah. Okay, you got to be live. When things start feeling like spring, I've noticed that there is there is like a, it's like coming out of hibernation, and your body is calling to go back into the darkness. So come out into the light, <laughs> even though this is a false spring. Uh, let's uh, let's let's try to to wake up. So. So Paul proves to us, look, uh, you were born into sin, and there's not really anything you can do about it. That's who you are, is is you're guilty. And then we looked in chapters 2 and 3, and we saw Paul proving to us that no person can be saved through their good works. That that there's no religious activity that can be done to appease God or gain favor with Him. And, And there's many faith systems that would espouse this very, very thing. Okay? This is what we talked about. Is the major difference between uh, biblical Christianity and, and really every other religion in the world is that most religions say that there's a series of, of of laws and activities and things that you must do, associations that you must make if you're going to gain the Father of God. But if we look at the text, if we look at Galatians, if we look at Ephesians, if we look at Philippians, if we look. At Paul's argument here in Romans, what we understand is that there's no good works that you can do to appease the judgment and the wrath of God. Every man deserves it. And then he begins to introduce us to this next concept at the end of chapter 3 and, and chapter 4. He explains that God's way of salvation has always been grace through faith. Grace through faith. That, that has been the way of salvation From the very beginning, for the Old Testament Jew, for the Jew in Rome, and for the Christian today. Is that the only way to gain proper favor with God and to be justified in His sight is to believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, and give your life in return for the life that He gave you. That's it. Repentance. There's there's no other way to heaven. There's no other access to God. There's no other favor by Jesus Christ than the way of faith. Through the grace of Jesus Christ. Does this make sense to everyone? This has been what we've looked at, and 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 the things that we've talked about, the little minute things, have been crucial for us. frameworking the actual doctrine of salvation. Yes, you, you guys hear me? Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna continue to proceed on. What we looked at last week was Abraham's example of uh, a grace uh, through faith salvation. Right. That's what we looked at. Is that. That Abraham believed on God before he even did any of the works that he was asked to do, before, before he took part in the circumcision specifically. He was already believing on God uh, per Genesis chapter 15, right? That's what we looked at. And now as we move into chapter 5, we're going to learn more about justification. Okay? Now let's let's start by asking the question, just reminding ourselves, what does the word justification mean? Because we're going to be using this word a lot. What does it mean to be justified before God? Just as if I never sinned. Yeah, good. Good. Somebody's been paying attention. Uh, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Okay, and that's a that's a really good phrase to use, but let's let's dissect that a little a little bit. It's just as if I'd never sinned. But we just got done looking, at, uh, really, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, just how gross we are in light of the holiness of God. We, we, we saw that we we're just filthy. And suddenly, because of justification, because of Jesus Christ's blood, it's just as if I'd never sinned. In other words, when God looks to us now, he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ, and it's just as if I'd never sinned. He sees us as blood, uh, blood washed, as blood cleansed, and we stand clean before him. That's an amazing thing. Justi- with justification comes righteousness and rightness before God. And when we deserve, deserve judgment, we, when, we, when the prosecution came and we deserved judgment, Jesus Christ was there and he stood in the gap. And this is crucial. Now, here's the important thing to understand is that Paul's explaining in chapter 5 that justification is more than just God's mercy. There's other things that come with being justified. That are crucial to our understanding. And we're going to look at those things today. And I, and I need you guys to do the hard work with me here. Because I've got like four messages. <laughs> I've, got, I've got like, I, I mean, I've got enough content here to get us through uh, at least the remainder of February and the beginning of March. But I'm going to try to get through it a much, as much of it as possible. There's going to be a lot of verse references. Some will be up on the screen. Some won't. Okay. Take good notes. Follow with me. And we're going to start in verse one. Are we ready to do that? Okay. By his grace. Let's do it verse 1 okay therefore being justified by faith by faith correct we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ so justification justification first and foremost brings one peace with god now i think this is a more important statement than what we give it credit for because it, it, we hear the word peace thrown around a lot. I mean, we pro- it was probably mingled into, like, all five of the worship songs that we sang this morning. Like, the word peace gets used a lot. And we recognize that it's important, but I don't think we fully comprehend the depth of what it means to have peace with God. So, so think about it this way. In our world, it is clear that there's plenty of unrest. Yeah? I mean, the world ain't right. right. There's something in the matter. There's something broken. And it seems that as I continue to live, I mean, maybe I just get more crotchety, okay, the older I get. But, but as I look out on the world, it seems to me that even from my youth, the world has become more complicated and more vile and more corrupt. And there's unrest in the world. And, and, and this is social, this is political. It's it's cultural. It seems as though the unrest only continues to grow, and the thing with that is that the solutions that the world comes up with aren't working. They're not bringing peace. They're only complicating the issue. Do you guys remember the story of Jonah? Have you guys ever read that story? You know, Jonah runs away from God, okay, and he's fleeing, and he gets out um, uh, on the on the sea, and he's and he's going to Tarsus. And what happens? A storm comes, and the boat begins to falter, and and the men that are on the boat with Jonah begin to say, "What is going on here? We're going to die!" And they're working really hard to save everyone's lives. And what do they do? What do they do? What is their response before before they sacrifice their idols? What do they What do they try to do? Do you remember? Cast lots. They cast lots to figure out who is the who is the sucker that got them <laughs> in this situation. But before that, what does it say? It says they tried to row harder. You guys remember that? They rode harder. Their solution to fixing their crisis was that they rode harder. And it didn't work. That's our world. We're trying to find answers in in national policy. In tax hikes. In tax reductions. Solutions in clothes drives. Solutions in recycling campaigns. Solutions in war. Solutions solutions in economic sanctions. Solutions in building wells in third world countries. And building churches. And building playgrounds. And at the end of the day, the unrest seems to just continually grow, doesn't it? And so the issue is that the world has unrest because it belongs to Satan. <clears throat> Satan is a real person. He's a real individual. With power and influence. And his solutions are build more churches. Fix taxes. clothes drives, wells. Why? Because it distracts from the true peace that can be found in Jesus Christ. Now also, listen to me, Christians compound the issue a lot of times because Christians don't know what they have in God. They don't recognize that their true peace is found in God. And so what happens is Christians then become involved in politics and they become involved in the worldly solutions. And then they go out to the, to the rallies and they go and they, and they do these things and they're trying to find solutions too. Because they've not fully realized what they truly have in Jesus Christ. Do you understand? And the unrest continues. And when the word peace here is used, this peace is like the peace, like a a pardon or or like um, the end of a war through Jesus Christ and through faith, we have peace with God. In other words, when the Bible says that we have peace through Jesus Christ, what it means is that God won the battle, the battle that we created. When we were enemies with God, when we found ourselves in opposition to God, he won out. And when he won the battle over our sin and our lives and he de- defeated sin once and for all in my heart that is when I found peace. I was no longer at war. I was no longer in unrest. The striving can cease because the world's problems don't appear to be quite as significant once you know Jesus Christ is your friend. When you see that the peace comes through Jesus Christ all of the drama In the world around us, in our relationships, in our family, in the politics of our world. They don't seem to hold quite as much significance when you know that through Jesus, I have eternal life. That one day all of this will cease. That one day he will provide the ultimate answer. Real peace can come in your life. And that brings us to this important point. Is that we no longer need to be affected by the unrest of the world. Or in our families, or in our circumstances, we function outside the world systems as agents of peace—peace peace in us and peace in our message. Philippians chapter four, verse six. You're good at this, man. I just want—I just want to tell you that you're a great PowerPoint teammate. <laughs> He's always on it. I don't even have to look over there. I have to look behind me. There it is. <laughs> peace in our hearts. Peace in our hearts is is crucial. <laughs> To living in light of who Christ made us to be. We have to understand this. We have to know it. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. In other words, the world isn't going to get it. The world isn't going to get it. I mean, I had a conversation yesterday with a young man at, a, at the coffee shop that I met with, who's a struggling Christian. a struggling Christian. He's struggling because he knows that he needs to commit himself to a local body and be trained up and learn God's word. But yet, he has so many plans for his life. And he, But he wonders at the same time, why he ha, is it that he has no peace in his heart? He doesn't even understand what Christ has given him in this peace. It's a peace that passeth all understanding. And you only truly know it when you rest in it. And it shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. It shall keep it. it. shall That word keep means protect. Hold it dear. He wants to hold you closely. Your mind and your heart. He wants to keep it. That you might have true peace. And so peace is not only in our hearts, but peace is also in our message. Did you know that? Romans chapter 10 verse 15 says, And how shall they preach? Except they be sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. In other words, the gospel—we see this again in Ephesians chapter six, verse fifteen. The the gospel that we carry is a gospel of peace. So we don't have to just have this peace hidden away in our hearts. This isn't just a personal thing. It's also a thing that you can deliver to the hearts and the lives of other people. It's in the very message of the gospel. It's reconciliation as at the heart of the message that we carry. You deliver a a message of peace. Now, is it divisive? Yes. Does it divide people? Yes. I mean, sometimes peace comes with anguish. Sometimes peace comes with loss. I mean, we read about Abraham, didn't we? What did he have to give up? He had to give up the idols of his fathers, the land of his family. He had had to to wander and and follow the Lord, and the circumstances were easy, the situation with Lot, and the battles and the war that he fought, and all these situations that he faced, to come to a place of absolute peace in, in God the Father. Peace came for him through anguish and it was divisive and it tore things apart and it pulled things apart. Remember, Lot had, had to go this way and he had to go that way and, and all these things happened. Listen to me. But peace in Christ, that's our message. That's, our, that's the message that we preach and that's crucial. So key point number one, what is peace? Peace is knowing that you have been justified through Christ. And have been accepted by God the Father. It's about acceptance. It's about acceptance here. Our justification means acceptance in God's eyes. And with that comes peace. Verse 2. think i catching this? You can leave that up there for a moment. Verse 2. Here we don't only just have acceptance with God. We have access to God. We, 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 we find our, ourselves in relationship with Him. We have access to Him. Do you guys remember um, when Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, (laughs) and the the sky turns black, and he cries out, it is finished, and the veil in the temple is torn, it's rent. you guys remember that? Well, what's the significance of that? From From top to bottom, it's torn. What's the significance of that? The significance of that is access to God. The significance is, is, is being able to come into the throne room in the Holy of Holies. And as dirty, filthy Gentiles, we're not even allowed to enter into the temple and go beyond the veil, let alone the, Holies of, the Holy of Holies. And now God has invited us through Jesus Christ to have complete access to him. Verse 2 By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Th- this is huge. And something I think that we very often as Christians neglect to consider that our justification also means that we have unfettered access to the throne room of the very creator of the world. We for- we literally forget this. Because if we actually believed it, it would inform and change the way that we live day to day. I mean, we live very boring and passive lives because we forget the, ver- the fact that That the creator of the world knows us and wants to be with us and he wants to dwell with us. I want you to notice closely the language in this verse. The first part says, through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have access. And the word access here means bring one to. To bring one to. In other words, Jesus Christ literally brought us before God the Father and presented us holy. Um, in in uh, John Phillips' commentary on Romans, he uses a, an illustration here, and it's a good one. Uh, I think it's weak, and I'll, I'll point that out in a second in, in one area. But he says this. He tells this story of uh, there's a, a little boy uh, that's crying outside of a palace, and he wants uh, to come before the king. And um, he's dirty and filthy and obviously is upset. And uh, as, he, as he approaches the doors, the guards refuse him access. They bar the way, and they don't even give him an explanation. And he stands there weeping and crying. And then uh, a stately individual comes up, and he sees the young boy crying. And uh, he's obviously a person of importance, and he asks the guards to move away. And he takes the young boy by the hand, and he brings him down the hallway, and he brings him through the lobby, and he brings the, him through the courtyard, and he brings him directly into the king. And because this young man was the prince... He had the ability to take this young boy who didn't previously have access to the king. He he had the ability to take him by the hand and bring him before the king. Now that's a great illustration, but I think it's it's defunct in one way. We don't get to just be brought before uh, God the Father and have access to him. Just simply, that's, that's, he adopts us as his very heirs. He doesn't just allow us... Jesus doesn't bring us into the throne room of God the Father simply to give us access. We're there to be adopted. We're there to to build a dwelling place, to to inhabit the Holy of Holies. You know, um, this reminded me a little bit of Mephibosheth. Do you guys know Mephibosheth? It's hard to say. You can try to say it with me. (laughs) <laughs> you guys know this story? Yes, familiar with this? This is a story where uh, King Saul dies, right? The king of Israel dies. And um, King David takes over. And uh, David swore to Jonathan. He said, look, your family, I'll always take care of your family. I-, I promise you that no matter what happens to us along the way, I will always honor you and, and your family. Okay? And Jonathan uh, had children and Mephibosheth was one of his children. And Mephibosheth, uh, when King Saul died, there was unrest and, and there was fleeing out of the kingdom. And he, he, uh, he, he fell and hurt himself and he walked with a limp and he went into hiding. And King David ruled the throne and he didn't know that Mephibosheth existed. Mephibosheth was in hiding. He was fearful of his life that because he was a, he was a, a, a grandson of Saul, that he was unworthy to know or be a part of the kingdom. And what David does is he, he asks his servants, look, go find any of the heirs of Saul that exist. You guys remember this story? It's a pretty powerful one. Go and find any of the heirs that still exist in Jerusalem and find them and bring them to me. And they bring Mephibosheth into to David's house. And Mephibosheth says, basically pleads for his life. Like, I, I want no harm, you're the king, I don't want, I don't want to interfere. And King David says, Look, I want to. Bringing you in to my home. And I want all the things that belong to me, I want them to be yours. And I want you to sit at my table. Just promise me this, you'll sit at my table every day. This is a picture of the access that we get to God the Father that we did not deserve. Absolute acceptance and absolute access to Him. Ephesians 3.11 says, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. This tells us that we don't just have access, we have the ability to be bold with God. Can you imagine? I mean, think about that for a second. You have the ability to come before God and in reverence be audacious with him. Be loud, to cry out, to fall down, to be hurt, to be in pain before him. To ask and plead for help, to say things in weakness—you don't have to be perfect. He never asked that of you. You're accepted before Him. He wants you to be honest with Him. Man, you understand that's the type of access that we have. And it says that that, that wherein we stand, and the word "stand" means to establish. Our access to the Father is no flimsy introduction. When I was—I remember. Um, one time, even I went to go visit family of hers in San Francisco, and um, we were—I've um, never really met anybody famous, really. Okay, every any, every encounter I have with someone famous is always the same. Okay, it's always the same, right? So, like, we're on the beach in Santa Cruz, and even knows where I'm going, and uh, I'm hanging out. And there's no one on the beach. I mean, it's empty. We're like the boardwalk. It's fall. It's all shut down. We're on the beach hanging out. There's mansions. Uh, over like on this bluff and all of a sudden I see uh, a really lanky black man running on the the beach and he's like this. Like exercising. But his legs are flailing out and he obviously doesn't have a very good posture. I'm like, and we're standing there I'm kind of trying not to watch him but it's just us on the beach and he's just running my way. And I'm just kind of tossing rocks and he gets closer and it's Danny Glover. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and, and, I look at Danny Glover, and he looks at me, and he goes, what's up? <laughs> and, and he just runs and keeps going. And you know what? Uh, I often tell people that I've met Danny Glover.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know why I say that. It just seems like, like, I don't know how else to explain it. Like, I bumped into Danny Glover. On, that's not on the beach in Santa Cruz. That seems like a mouthful. I met Danny Lever, yeah? Uh, we were at uh, a concert one time, and I stood through a whole set next to Jeff Tweedy of, of another band playing. Jeff Tweedy of Wilco is, like, right next to me. And I just stood next to him. He's really short. He's, like, this tall. And I just stood next to him. I met, I met Jeff Tweedy. You know how that, like, you get that twisted in your mind. Like what Jesus Christ does with, uh, with us and God the Father. This is no flimsy introduction. This is no passing in the night. This word stand means establish. And in the very throne room of God, we get to dwell in that place. We get to, to, to live there and be with him. We're established with him forever in fellowship. And the key question for you is this. Have you personally reckoned the significance of what it means to have access, direct access To the creator of the world. Have you personally reckoned this fact? See if you understand that. Then you would not fear anything. You wouldn't fear anything. Do you have fears? You know why you have fears? Because you haven't reckoned the fact that you stand in the very throne room of God the Father. That's why you have fear. That's why you have fear. If you understood that. Then you would not withhold anything. You wouldn't be reserved. You wouldn't be guarded. You wouldn't wouldn't hide away. And this is how we treat our Christianity a lot of times, is we make it so personal, and we keep it so guarded and and held back, and we keep it so boxed and compartmentalized. But if you knew that you dwelt in the throne room of of God and you had direct access to him, you you would have a boldness about you and an openness that declared the fact that you were heir to the throne. I'm not talking about a cockiness. I'm talking about a confidence that comes with knowing that you get to talk to God the Father and He hears your voice on a daily basis. That's what I'm talking about. If you understood that you had direct direct access to the Creator of the world, then everything would suddenly seem possible, wouldn't it? What are the things that seem impossible to you? What are the things that seem like they could never happen? See, See, when you know God... He knows you. And you remember where your dwelling place is, where you're established, that you stand before the living God. Then suddenly all those things that seemed impossible become very possible. And you come to expect them. So so I pray that you would come to a place where you get begin to practice remembering who you are in your justification. Verse 3. Let's talk about the value of tribulation. While our standing in God is perfect, um, our state isn't always perfect. Do you know that? Like, like on our day-to-day basis, our state with God is not always exactly right. It's progressive in that it changes. One day we are in fellowship and we recognize who we are in God, and the next day we struggle with that, don't, don't we? Let's talk for a moment about, uh, about character. Let's talk about the value of of tribulation. Verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Okay, so let's break this down for a second. What this means is that while our justification brings some certainties, acceptance, and access to God, there are some things that aren't certain. And you growing in in godly character is not a certain thing. You growing in deeper relationship with God and growing to be a mature Christian is not a certain thing. That's something that you have to determine every day. And it says, we glory in tribulations. Now listen to me. Tribulation is suffering. Tribulation is suffering. It's difficulty that comes into your life. We glory in tribulation. No, you don't. No, you don't. None of us can read this honestly from a personal perspective because we don't. We avoid tribulation. That's the life that we live. And I'm going to do my best to not preach the message that Sam Miles preached this morning. But that seems to happen a lot. It's an insane statement. And unless you are a person who fully understands the value of knowing God, it's one you can't make. You don't know how. Tribulation is suffering. And you know what? It's promised to us in Scripture. If we're living a life as a Christian and we're devoted to Jesus Christ, suffering is promised to us. It's promised to us. Philippians 1.29 says, For unto you it is given uh, in the in the behalf of, of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That's given to you. It is given to suffer for His namesake. It's like it's a, it's a gift in which we should glory. Tribulation, see here's the deal. Tribulation holds great value. Did you know that when you lose your job? Tribulation, right? right, right, right. When your family and you aren't getting along? Tribulation, difficulty, right? When there's, when there's, when there's uh, not enough money or your grades aren't right or something's coming and, and, and maybe it's a death in the family. Sometimes it's an illness. Tribulation comes. And the question is, how you respond to tribulation absolutely informs whether or not you're going to have the character of God. How are you going to respond to it? Um, it, was a, it was a couple weeks ago that uh, Sam mentioned a, a quote from Spurgeon, and it went kind of like this, that the, the, the best so, uh, soldiers of, of Christianity we're born on the highland of affliction. Very wordy and beautiful. And then, so I started looking at other quotes that Spurgeon has about suffering. I really like this one Men will never be great in theology until they are great in suffering. See, it'll, it's impossible for us to actually grow in our understanding of who God is. Unless we embrace the fact that he's called us to suffer alongside of him. And the crazy thing about that in Christianity today, this is so like diametrically different than the way Christians live. Today in Christianity, we do our very best in America to insulate ourselves from any problems whatsoever. And it's really, that's at the end of the day, that's why we go to the, to the marches and the rallies. It's because we're trying to protect our own. That's why we're in favor of not letting Syrian refugees come into America. I'm not getting into that politically, but my point is this. We fear things that are different from us because we're afraid that it'll bring us tribulation and difficulty. And we forget that we have a message and a peace in the gospel. You understand what I'm saying? We fear things and we insulate ourselves and we hide away and we tuck ourselves away. Because at the end of the day, we don't want to suffer the way that the apostles suffered, certainly. Did you guys... Forget that every single one of the apostles besides John died a martyr's death. And these guys turned the world upside down. If we want to be great men and women of God, we have to embrace the idea of suffering. See, suffering teaches the believer to rightly determine that if pain endures and things are lost along the way, I'm still going to trust God. Suffering is a teacher. Tribulation is a teacher. And it teaches us to determine that no matter what happens to us, I will still trust the Lord. That's our key point number two. Tribulation teaches the believer to endure and trust God for his outcome. Because too many of us, in order to avoid suffering and not getting our way like babies, When when the tribulation shows up, we're not looking for God's outcome. We're looking for an escape route. We're looking for our best solution. We're not looking for God's outcome in that situation. We're not seeking him and hoping that he'll work things out. We're looking to, to usurp and move around this tribulation and make an answer for ourselves. And in that, you will always, Christian, listen to me. If you live that type of life, you will always be weak in your faith. And so you can stand and face difficulty head on, waiting for the outcome that God wants. You will always be weak in your maturity. This is why tribulation makes us patient. Our patience in the Lord is the outcome, right? It makes us patient. It makes us have the ability to stand and wait on the Lord for his outcome to come and enter into our lives. And to deliver us from the circumstance, and or make a way where there doesn't seem to be one. Or, or just simply bring us peace. And then it tells us that the experience is developed out of patience. Now this word experience means proven. <clears throat> means proven. Experience means proven. And proven means mature. Proven means mature. And so tribulation, it creates patience, and patience creates experience. Experience of waiting on God, waiting things out. And then experience produces hope. Experience produces hope. Hope because the person that has watched and waited on God (coughs) learns how to endure hard things But then they've they've learned over time how to watch and wait in hopefulness. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so scripture does this thing where it takes hope and it pairs it with evidence. You guys get that? Hope and evidence results in faith, right? You guys catch that, right? Now the evidence can only come as we accrue experience. I hope I'm not confusing you. I know you're half dead right now. (laughs) Right? You're like, your eyes are starting to roll back into your head. But listen to me very carefully. I want this to be clear. That we gain the evidence of who God is in His very nature through experiencing His deliverance when the ocean seems big and the waves are crashing down and things seem hard and we watch and we wait and we experience his deliverance over and over and over and what it does in our hearts is it builds a hopefulness and a recognition that look, anytime things come hard my way I can simply wait on him I'm an experienced believer God's proven himself out in my life, the evidence is clear I have hope in him hope in him alone And here's the key point. True hope is born as people grow accustomed to God working through hard situations. Look, you should never take God for granted. Never. I mean, you should always be in awe of him. But you, listen, if you're a mature believer, you're never really going to be that surprised by the fact that God comes through for you. Because that's just what he does. Oh yeah, that's my God. That's what he does. He does the supernatural. He does the crazy. He does the insane. And he brings peace in the midst of storms when there doesn't seem to be answers. That's what he does. That's called hopefulness. It's resting in the fact that God always comes through. An experienced believer is someone that has been patient long enough to build up the evidence necessary to learn that God always has a plan and a purpose. Always. Verse six. Let's look at the value of his blood, and then we'll close up. Let's look at the, look at look at that, and we're not going to get to the end—the part that's really doctrinal and crazy, and the part I really wanted to get to—we'll um, have to save that for next week. But this is very, very important and a great way to end uh, today's message. Look at verse six carefully. For when we were yet without strength, okay, that's that's Romans chapter one and two, right? When we were without strength, before we had acceptance, before we had access. When we stood before God guilty, when things weren't right, and when we stood in weakness without strength, what? What? In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now listen. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, someone even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, our weakness beckoned Christ to move. When we were weak and when we were without strength, our weakness beckoned and called upon Christ for him to intervene. And he came through in due time, in godly timing. He came through. And see, humanity's idea of sacrifice is explained here. That even for a righteous and a holy man, people wouldn't be willing to give their own lives for. Right? I mean, very rarely is it that people stand in the gap on behalf of even good men. That they would give up their own lives even for for someone who's good. And yet, we were filthy and dirty and wretched and we had we had lies and, and jealousy and covetousness and 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 we thought evil and vile of people and 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 in our hearts was only wickedness continually and he died for you. He laid down his life for you. See this is an, a type of sacrifice it doesn't even make sense. We're, we're unworthy of that level of love and sacrifice. But He did that He might deliver us from sin. And so let me close with this. There's so many things that we neglect in our faith. We neglect the fact, we forget how weak we are without Him. You know, the reason that we uh, so oftentimes deal with insecurity and depression is because we forget that we're accepted in God. Is that when other people reject you, or you feel rejected even in your own heart, you've projected rejection on yourself, and you've told yourself that you're unworthy, that's what Jesus Christ died for you were accepted through Him. And we forget that. We forget that. And, and and we forget that we have access to Him. We forget that not only did he, did he accept us, He took us and He brought us into a dwelling place and He adopted us as His own and He made us heirs to a throne. And then we get to be partakers and, and we live in a, in a life. That brings uh, gives us the ability to have power to speak, with the authority of the king. We forget it. We forget it. And so we live really boring lives. And listen to me. I, I don't. I don't really know. I don't know how to close this. This one. Okay. Uh, Sam preached on tribulation. I I preached on tribulation and and being willing to suffer and to endure in order to grow. And and we've talked about being accepted in God, we've talked about access to Him. You know, you know how these things might be pricking your hearts. You know. But here's the deal. I know this. God's calling us to much more than this boring, pathetic (laughs) approach that we take to our faith. We don't evangelize because we're too busy. We're too busy. Because we're pursuing things that are worldly. We're pursuing things that are worldly because we don't understand that what we're really called to do is sacrifice and suffering. I mean, we work really hard. We make decisions about our careers. We don't even consider God. There's no way we can comprehend the fact that He has suffering for us and that He wants us to draw us into difficult circumstances that we might stand strong because we're too busy making our own way scaffolding up our life so that it's protected and and straightforward and easy to understand and we make plans and we disregard the fact that we dwell in the very light of God the Father. There's no way we can consider tribulation because we can't even make provision for Him in our day-to-day life because we're doing our own dang thing and I'm sorry for you and I'm sorry for me in the days that I forget that God's got something better for me. And I have a true purpose in Jesus Christ. And so, worship team, come up. Let's, I know that you guys uh, are like out of it. I mean like six of you were like sleeping and I get it, okay? But listen to me. Uh, this is the word of God. That's what this is. You believe that or you don't. So, when the word of God's open, I'm person force to come to groups with who I am in light of it. And I hope that you do the same thing. Okay? Let's worship.